Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. I am here in New Orleans this week and I have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, you are also not at home. Where are you? I am in Cincinnati and I am two steps from a graders. So people who are listening who know what graders is, I hope you're jealous of me. I barely know what a Cincinnati is. What's a graders? <laughs> it's like the best ice cream. Their shtick is that they, well, they have this black raspberry ice cream and they have chocolate chunks that like can just be the size of a scoop. And like, that's their shtick, big chocolate chip chunks. Okay, look, but just buy chocolate if you want that. Get it oh, out of my no, ice cream. Oh, no, you are going to emerge the Ohio people against you, not me. Look, I'm going to skip it. my usual commentary on <laughs> putting chili on top of pasta because I know I've hit that a couple times, but... <laughs> We are going to enjoy the cultural notes of our current locations while we talk through a packed show. We're going to talk about Webflow's fundraise, a new CEO over at AllRaise. We're going to talk about fund of funds, what's going on with the late stage money trying to go early, and also SoftBank's Evergreen Fund, which is very interesting. Then we're going to riff on some global startups through the lens of China, its venture capital market, and also its stock market. And then we're going to wrap up with a couple of silly notes on Facebook, crypto, and of course, NFTs are coming to Instagram. Natasha, can I start with Webflow, please? Please, this company is just one of the few that, that I really care about, even though it's out of my sector. So tell us about it. Yeah, so Webflow is a service that lets you build no-code websites. And the goal is over time to expand that into more no-code application development. And I feel like no-code, a bit like AI three or four years ago, was this theme that we talked about as a category. And then it became kind of like a business process that people build into services. And it's now kind of standard. And so I almost don't want to call them a no-code company because it feels too restrictive. Yeah. But what matters is the news item is that the company has raised a fresh round of fundraising, $120 million at a roughly $4 billion value valuation led by YC and also had more money from Capital G and Excel. So a big new round, roughly a year after the last one. And it almost feels a little surprising now to see nine-figure mega rounds that double unicorn valuations. Yeah, I know. It's kind of refreshing to be able to like think more into what it means to double valuation because we, yeah. as we've talked about on the show so much, the market has changed and late-stage companies raising now versus raising even like two or three months ago means something a lot different. And I guess in Webflow's case, the new valuation, are we thinking it's just because it's a hot company that everyone knows its name and they're doing well or do you feel like they have some actual proof behind the, I guess, what, $4 billion valuation? Yeah, so I think it doesn't hurt that they're a hot company that everyone has heard of. I think that's always a bonus point in kind of driving investor FOMO. We've talked about that on the show ad nauseum. But there's also a lot of substance behind the numbers. So the company is on the cusp of reaching $100 million of annual recurring revenue or ARR. Okay. And that comes after some pretty strong growth. The company's also seen increasing enterprise revenues, proving that it can go kind of up market, which is a key thing for SaaS companies. And I'll just say this, it had a history of bootstrapping. I think the CEO told me last year it was like cash flow positive in 2020. So I think it's raising capital ahead of its needs, if that makes sense. I don't think it ran out of cash, essentially. Last year, by the way, in January, it raised $140 million at a $2.1 billion valuation as a kind of a historical data point. But I think this is one of the few companies that actually deserves a 40x ARR multiple because it has enough cash to go for several years. It has reasonable growth rates and that multiple will come down by the time it raises next capital or goes public. And so I can kind of make it work out. I just don't want to over-index Natasha sure. and make other people think that they're also worth a 40X multiple because I think that's <laughs> going to be increasingly uncommon. You're not all special. <laughs> Hear that and like, absorb that. Well, to be clear, if you listen to Equity, you are special. <laughs> Super and we love special. You. Thank you so and much. And you should be 
a hundred X ARR, <laughs> obviously. But for the schmucks out there who are not part of our little team, we hate you. Um, no, no, wow, I, that's extreme. <laughs> I feel like with Webflow, it kind of checks off every box of a company that is able to raise in the late stage right now with being cash flow positive. Having a bootstrapping pass specifically, I feel like we're going to yes. see that trend. That's a huge mark of like, you know how to conserve capital because you just didn't have access to an unlimited pool of millions before you had revenue, probably. I mean, yeah, that's and, me projecting, and, but And Natasha, they've also reached IPO scale. You know, that's that's so critical. They're at 100 million ARR. They could, right now, begin to lay the groundwork to go public. Now, I don't think they're going to because the public market, as we've discussed, has been in turmoil for the last couple of months. And with 120 million of new funding, they have just, I think the CEO said like four or five years of runway, if I recall the Forbes story okay. correctly. So just tons of time to figure this out. But I mean, figure out what? All they have to do is keep growing. And that doesn't seem to be an issue for them. The only thing I don't know is what was their 2021 growth rate? That's the one data point I don't okay. have, but everything around that looks good. It's an important asterisk because we don't want to ever be too optimistic. Yep. And I think with a company like Webflow, I'm trying to think of how I can ask you basically how much how much attention do you pay to them on like a day-to-day -day basis? Like, are they the company of no code that everyone should be looking for? Are they one of the top five? I just want to temp check on like the Alex analysis. Okay, so I'll put it in very selfish terms. Please do. When I found out, that they had gone to Forbes and told them all about their fundraising and had not come to me, I was miffed. Okay, that's all that's I need my to standard. know. <laughs> now, to be clear, could they have emailed me and I missed it? Absolutely. Am I thousands of emails behind? You bet. But I was just instantly like, ah, Forbes. And to be clear, love the Forbes team. Sure. Friends with them. But I'm also competitive of because course. I'm alive. And so I was like, oh, really? And I pulled up my notes my last call with the CEO and I was going back through them and I was like, oh yeah, this is all really cool. So I'm, I'm writing about it. Actually, there's a piece coming out that'll be out, I hope, by the time the show is out. I need to finish it. <laughs> but it's a really fun moment in time. It's a cool company and a data point that you can still raise at, I would say, aggressive multiples if you are the right company. So that's not done. It's probably just rare. But another thing that's rare, actually, and still far too rare is diverse investments from venture capitalists. But there's some good news in that front, Natasha, because Allraise has some news. Yeah. So Allraise, for people who don't know, is probably one of the most well-known at this point tech nonprofits that's hoping to increase diversity of the deals and decision makers within venture capital. They focus on basically making sure women represent more of the people who are writing the checks and then also the recipients of the checks. And yes. Five months ago, their CEO, Pam Koska, resigned. She rejoined the startup world, and they've been on the CEO search ever since. I've always been interested in this nonprofit because, one, it was founded now almost five years ago by every top oh, wow. female VC you can think of, like all of them, any, any name. And so like, it's a lot of smart people in a room together deciding on ways to bring inclusivity. But they eventually landed on someone that I actually knew. So her name is Mandela Dixon. She used to run Founder Gym, which is a perfect match, I think, with what Allraise did. Founder Gym was all about kind of boot camps that helped unrepresented founders figure out how to fundraise. So speak about CEO product fit. I feel like that was such a clear win for them. <laughs> Is that the phrase CEO product fit or is it like founder market fit? I, I know what you're referring to. I'm trying to recall the actual phrase we're product playing market, with. Product market, founder market, founder yeah. product, founder, founder. Fa Pro product founder market fit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anyways, I know what you mean. She's obviously qualified for it, has experience in a relevant area, and was working on a similar sort of issues right before. So in terms of having someone who can probably hit the ground running day one, absolutely. A question about founder gym. So I know they had programs around the world, 
but I'm not actually sure how big of a deal it was. Was it a pretty large organization? Because I'm just behind on what they did, to be clear. Yeah, so they helped, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but they helped hundreds of founders kind of graduate who then went on to raise starter capital. Ah. They had 18 cohorts across six continents. And they landed this huge partnership with Google, which was like kind of their way of getting validation without ever needing to turn to venture capital. So we saw- I see kind of like a bootstrapped, well-known organization pop off. They actually shut down a few weeks ago. And now over a month later, I actually messaged Mandela then. And I was like, hey, what happened? And she was like, yeah, what's, stay what's tuned. And then <laughs> this was the news. And I, she says that the timelines were separate. But the reason that Founder Jim shut down that she finally gave me was that leadership all kind of decided to pursue different career opportunities. Yeah. I'll I take mean, it. I mean, that'll happen. Especially if, you know, you're going to go run all raise, you probably can't really split your time. That's going to be very much a full-time job. And just some data points on all raise. Uh, it has over 20,000 community members founded back in 17 and has raised, I think it's 11 million since launch. 11 million since launch. It's always funny when they say that because it's like they are a startup. They are a nonprofit that acts like a startup. The yeah. 11 million is definitely in donations. But the point I really want to focus on within this section is Mandela basically being pretty transparent and saying, listen, I'm joining Allray's. I want to bring a new level of inclusivity to the Allray's mission, which has been, if I'm allowed to have a gripe with a nonprofit doing good. Gripe away. <laughs> My biggest gripe with Allray's has always been that they look at women in aggregate and they don't look at, for example, the amount of money that Black women or Latinx women or non-binary individuals, that kind of disconnect. It's not that they don't track it. They don't, they don't have goals around it and they don't kind of scream it out into the open. And so I think Mandela was saying that they're planning on making sure the HQ and executive team at Allray's looks more diverse. And mm. in like a survey coming out soon, I'm crossing my fingers, we see new goals, not just around women in aggregate, but like historically overlooked women. Well, it reminds me of the thing we had back in 2013 when everyone realized they couldn't keep doing mantles, which are all men panels. And so they would like put one white woman at the edge and be like, yes. look, diversity. And Natasha is trying to point out that that is what you could call a start, but it is certainly not the termination or the accumulation point that you want to get to. And that's not the right word at all. What I mean is the, it's not the uh, ideal end goal. Ideal end goal. Thank you. My my in-brain dictionary just short-circuited entirely there and couldn't find English. Podcasting is fun. Anyways, I'm going to throw in a little teeny bit of data on the changing kind of face of venture, if you will. Anaheim and I just wrote a piece Thursday morning looking at Chicago and what a number of funds and groups are doing to increase essentially like the, the diversity of, of people raising early stage capital in the city. And in the last couple of years, the proportion of angel and seed money raised by underrepresented founders in Chicago has actually tripled up to like 13% from like five or something like that. Those are approximate numbers, but you know what I mean? And so it is actually possible over a short time frame to make material change. And so I'm hoping that Allray's can, you know, really push the numbers. Yeah. And even to that point, like what you just said, it's yeah, like let's get men involved. Let's get white men involved. It shouldn't just be underrepresented founders, yep. underrepresented investors backing underrepresented founders. But I, I guess I do like seeing that they are getting more power as well because it just validates the talent that has been out there for so long. So everyone, please catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking about funds, we're going to move into our first main section of the day, which is all about funds and some changes thereof. And we have to talk about fund to funds, Natasha. Should we define what that means before we dive into the news? Or is that a sufficiently well-known concept that we can kind of just skate along? Let's dive into it, if not for people who don't know, but for the alliteration and just the tongue twister that is saying fund to funds so many times. <laughs> so a fund to funds in its most basic sense is a pool of capital that is then dispersed into smaller funds or subsidiary funds. So for example, if I raised 100 million 
million and put 10 million into Sequoia, 10 million into Jason Horowitz, et cetera, I would have built a fund of funds. Perfect. And the concept of investors putting money into other investors is nothing new. We've been seeing that happen. I think the first time I started really understanding why that's cool is I've heard Anderson Horowitz doing a lot of that for like basically competitive intelligence. Why don't we help the really experimental, fun new investor start off yep. and then get exposure to all of their hot deals earlier than everyone else and do a follow-on round that makes them look good and us get good terms. So this week I wrote a piece basically saying that everyone's going to start launching a fund of funds, basically meaning that a trend that we've always seen happen is going to happen a lot more. And that's really inspired by Tiger Global allocating $1 billion for early stage funds that the information broke a few weeks ago. And then also 776, which is Alexis Ohanian and Caitlin Holloway's fund launching the Titans Fund, which is just like an accelerator for emerging fund managers. Two efforts back to back to me and with very different incentives, Tiger Global and 776 are just opposite ends of the pole of... of a vibe. So um, I was kind of, I thought that that was a really interesting contrast to have. I just love the phrase opposite ends of the pole of vibe because I know exactly what you mean by that, which is that, oh my gosh, could their personalities be any different? Oh my God. No. <laughs> Not at all. One is like, yay community, let us talk and breathe on the internet. The other is like, who, who, who are you? <laughs> we don't talk to we're press. Not gonna, we're, we're not going to answer your emails unless we're mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So essentially we're seeing more fund of funds. And then the theme here seems to be later stage capital, which tends to be larger, kind of comes in larger chunks, if you will, trying to put money into early stage companies, not just by their own hand, but also by giving it to other people who are very much involved in the early stage community. And Natasha, to me, this fits very neatly into the theme we've seen in the last couple of years of late stage money just trying to go earlier in general. And I think Tiger is the latest example of this and maybe the best, but yeah. certainly far, far from the first. Yeah. It's kind of like in the past, you could have probably gotten away with being a fund that gives scouts a little bit of money and help them invest. Sure. Or or even just go and collab with your friends. But it's been kind of refreshing, especially keeping underrepresented founders in mind, that we're seeing these relationships start to get codified. Like, you are giving me money and I will help you. Yes, but I will not help you just because you're a powerful person. So that's what I hope we see what happen with fund of funds. But another fund change, I know we're over-indexing on funds a little bit this week, but it's just because it's really interesting, is like, we're seeing evergreen funds pop up into the conversation again, which I learned about a week ago, and now I'm seeing happen again, and I, I don't know what to make of it. So evergreen funds, in my experience, were a phrase and a theme that I talked about when I spoke with mostly British investors who were publicly listed venture capitalists who essentially recycled capital over a infinite time horizon, making them evergreen. It's a tree-based reference, I think, because evergreen trees don't lose their needles, Yeah, I guess. That. so. Okay. If you're not into arboreal facts, this won't make a lot of sense, but essentially it means permanent funds. <laughs> yeah. Funds that don't have a date in which they dissolve and kind of return all the capital back to their LPs. And in this case, Natasha, SoftBank is doing this. Yeah. So SoftBank did something interesting this week. They announced in 2020 that they were going to be dedicating $100 million in capital to an opportunity growth fund that would just be to back historically overlooked founders. And they fully invested that amount across 70 companies. And now, two years later, they're saying that they're turning that fund, which we had a very specific number, a number with, into a evergreen fund. So they're saying that the checks will be between 300K and 700K and that they want to deploy more capital than their first 
go around. My question was just why go evergreen instead of give the community a signal that you are dedicating this much money? When you're a soft bank, your evergreen fund is pretty powerful of a statement. So, well, my read of this is they had a $100 million fund and it was actually invested into, I think, 55% of startups that were block founded, 40% had a Latinx founder and 5% actually had both. And so they did deploy it into definitely a more diverse pool of investors. And by making it evergreen, they're essentially just removing the end date is my read. So as capital recycles from those early investors, Investments, they're not going to take that as profit and put it somewhere else. They're just going to put it right back to work. It would have been cooler if they said it's an evergreen fund and now it's a billion dollars. I think it yeah. is pretty cool that they're saying, look, we are just going to keep this effort going. And if they make good bets, it should grow in size because venture returns should be sizable. So as exits happen and liquidity happens, if we ever do see IPOs again, we'll see, <laughs> then that money should go back into okay. it. So essentially to me, it is more money over more time. It's just in a less splashy, less kind of like headline friendly way. Like if they said a billion, we would have all been like, oh, a billion dollars. Nice. But in this case, it could add up to that over time if it recycles well. And I think that it probably will. So to me, this is overall net good. This is going to be like a niche. I don't understand VC funds at times question. Oh no! But when it recycles back, when are they going to start profiting off of this? Because this isn't a charity fund, if I understand correctly. Well, the way that I understand evergreen funds for a group like SoftBank is that they get to kind of report material markups and changes to the value of their portfolio in their earnings. Okay. And if you want to get an example of this, just go back through SoftBank earnings and look at the varying quarter by quarter impact of vision fund results on their overall profitability. If this evergreen fund does perform well, they never have to kind of rip money out of it. It can just kind of sit there and keep self-generating more and more capital and they can write that up as profit to a certain degree. There's accounting nuance here. I am being general. So don't email me about this. And so they don't need to really kind of rip capital out to make it make sense for them. And also because it's recycling from an initial starting point, okay. they've already put all the capital they need to to get the ball rolling. Okay, I follow that. I follow that. I guess like... Oh, thank God. <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> I was saying that. I'm like, does this make any sense no, at all? No, it does. So I think connecting the dots between the fund to funds conversation and the evergreen conversation, we're seeing funds start to get a little different. They're not just going to stay in the late stage, not going to stay in the early stage. They'll invest in funds. They'll go evergreen and basically say, screw you LPs. We're going to not wait and try and deliver returns within a certain bracket of time. So that yeah. loosening of what a VC fund needs to provide is refreshing somewhat. I Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we've seen this as well in VC firms kind of changing their overall status to be more financial advisors. They can invest in public stocks and crypto tokens and so forth. Essentially, I think the old rubric of what a VC does is still a viable model, but we are seeing increasing tinkering and changes and variations on the same theme. I think as the venture market gets increasingly broad, deep and different. This is maybe what we should have expected, frankly. Yeah, totally. It's like maturing in a different way. Let's end with the story that we've been desperate for you to write, pressuring you to write, which is <laughs> Carta's numbers. Carta gave you a data dump of how rounds have changed when you look at US Series A, B, and C valuations, which I'm begging to understand and kind of actually even ask you to connect with what we just talked about. Yeah. Okay. So Carta, if you don't know, used to be called eShares. They provide a service for startups to handle their cap tables and a bunch of other stuff, 409A valuations and so forth. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. If you do know, well, there you go. And what this means is they have real on the ground data from startups about their capital raising events that are actually timed to the right time. So often when we hear about a round, they're like, oh yeah, we raised it in October and we're telling you in March. And then you're like, oh, why? But what they can do is they can look at rounds that actually closed on certain dates and compare different periods. And so what Carta gave me, Natasha, was November, December versus January, February for okay. US A through C rounds. And 
what struck me was how much of a change we've seen. We're talking about hundreds of rounds in the United States that kind of fit into this data pool. And we saw median fundraises come down, average fundraises come down, valuations essentially coming down. There was one single data point. I think it was median series B valuations that rose, but every other arrow was pointed down. So it goes to show not just that the venture market is changing, but that it has actually changed and that people should pay attention to it. So if you want, all the numbers are on the site. I'm not going to kind of riff through them here because it's not a great podcast format to show off a matrix, but it is a fascinating data set to show just how much things have changed in the last four months. And I don't think everyone's aware of that still, even though we've been talking about it kind of ad nauseum, it doesn't seem to have clicked in every sector. And so I would really recommend if you are fundraising, go look at the data and then add that to your overall kind of expectations when you go out to raise again. It's much more efficient than trying to do it yourself. I am very glad I have a piece to now refer to and blame the piece when I ask VCs about how their valuations are changing. <laughs> and I, I realized I didn't answer your second question, which is how does this kind of fit into everything else that we're seeing? And yeah. so here's the question that I have. We are seeing earlier stage startup valuations change go down in the United States, essentially a decline. But we're also seeing a lot of this late stage money increasingly try to work its way into the early stages. And what VCs and angels tell us is that late stage investors simply are not as price sensitive as traditional series A funds. If you have you know, a $3 billion fund, a million dollars plus or minus on a valuation doesn't really matter to you. But if you're running a small series A fund, that might be very impactful to your overall returns. So we would expect to see as more late stage money comes into the early stages via the mechanisms we discussed earlier, mm -hmm. price distortion and looser valuations, which are better for startups essentially. But okay. we're not seeing that. Yeah. And so the distortive effects of the late stage money haven't been enough to actually supersede and fully combat the changing dynamics in the earlier stages. So that's a tension point that I think we should keep an eye on throughout the year. I don't think we can kind of solve it today or figure out exactly what's going on, but that's why I think it fits into the overall narrative we're discussing. You really aptly in your piece pointed out how Series B is becoming somewhat of the character that we see receiving the pressure of late stage going early stage, which I think is like kind of funny. Everyone's like slowly keeping their way and Series B, this round that like, okay I'm like definitely just going down a tangent right now but like yeah, series B around no one really thinks about it's not <laughs> as exciting as a C as late stage as a C as a C and so I feel like series B is just getting the attention it deserves now and I'm kind of happy about series it. B is the middle child of the venture capital yeah world. and to explain why that's the case seed and angel money are about getting to an MVP kind of your first product and kind of like getting the first couple of customers proof points to make sure that what you're building does have market resonance and yes, that has changed over time. Seed rounds are bigger. People do more before they raise an A. But back in the day, a Series A was your first, quote, institutional round. Yeah. And it was kind of a mark of maturity for a company. It's when your valuation would go up by quite a lot. You're doing a lot of hiring. And you were really proving out that your sales cycle or your go-to-market motion was repeatable. Series B was an acceleration of that into Series C, the late stage, at which point you're kind of cruising towards an IPO. But you're right. Series B does sit in that weird bit in between things. It's the adolescence of a startup. And so it's awkward yeah. for everybody. Yeah, it's awkward and it's getting a spotlight. So like it's something to track. And I don't know if you already made this point, but I feel like this, the other reason this data kind of matters now more than the one we're going to see at the end of this quarter is that we need near term quick windows into how deals are changing versus just aggregate. And that happens rarely, I think. I mean, you write about data more than I do, but I feel like it's rare for you to listen to just a few months and care about it. This was an exception, kind of. Absolutely. And the reason why this data set was so cool, and I'm 
frankly, just thankful that Carta pulled it for me and let me play with it. Because if you think about the end of 2021, it was still up until kind of like the November, December timeframe, the single hottest period of time we've ever covered as reporters looking at the venture capital and startup worlds. But then in November and through December and then through to February, and even really until now, we have seen stock market declines that we thought should show up and impact mm -hmm. overall venture risk appetite, which should impact startup valuations. And brrr, yes, we are. So it's cool to be like, this is probably happening. And then, you know, wait, and then, ah, it did happen. Let's move on from the U.S. and talk about China, because that is just a conversation that does actually surprise me. Even when I think things are slowing down, they're going faster. When, they're, when I think they're going faster, they're slowing down. <laughs> this week, you wrote a couple pieces about just kind of how the country's tech stocks turbulence is impacting the startup scene. Where do you think is the best place to start for people who haven't been keeping up with kind of all the announcements coming out of China in the tech world? I think the place to start, and I'm sorry to go so far back in time, but it's when Ant was going to go public and China said no. Yeah, honestly. So Chinese, and to be clear, when I say China, I mean the Chinese government. I'm not saying the Chinese people. Distinct concepts. We tend to use nations as a stand-in yes. for government. So when we say China, we mean Chinese Communist Party. Why that matters, Natasha, is that the canceling of the Ant IPO was, in a sense, the starting gun of the massive regulatory out, uh, regulatory barrage, maybe regulatory, sure. like just rollout, if you will, from the Chinese government impacting a lot of technology companies, especially social companies, fintech companies. A lot of the big winners from China's last five to 10 years of startup activity kind of came under the hammer to a degree. And that impacted the value of those stocks, both listed here in the United States and also listed in various Chinese markets. And so last year, we're watching this happen. We're seeing new regulations come out about this and that and video game time and celebrity fan culture and how fintechs have to handle lending, all this stuff. And startups just kept fundraising. Yeah, I mean, this, to me was jarring because I was focused a lot more on edtech last year. Still am, but in a different way. And everyone was pointing towards China as the spot to be if you're an edtech company. It just makes so much sense. Parents are willing to spend money. And when China released all the regulations that basically stopped edtech companies from being able to make profits. And if you're a tutoring company, you can't exist here anymore. IPO regulations, all of the sort. I completely thought we were going to see a disappearance of innovation or like appetite to innovate. The companies would just move their HQs. But it looks like now, a few months later, that hasn't really shaken out. It hasn't shaken out the way we expected to through the end of last year. But here's what's happened recently. I'm going to condense a lot of stuff into a little bit of time because I've realized that we've been going on a little bit long. So I'm going to yes, yes, please. brevitize myself. The value of Chinese tech stocks has really decreased in the last couple of months. And it does appear that that in conjunction with COVID-19 lockdowns, yeah. tensions involving relations with Russia as it invades Ukraine, general global trade tensions, political tensions, and so forth have actually now begun to impact Chinese startup venture capital activity. The reason why this matters is there was a point, I think it was back in 2017, 2018, when Chinese venture capital amounts actually surpassed those in the United States. And there was a question, you know, will China's tech scene take over? Will it become the new Silicon Valley? Are we going to see a changing of the guard from essentially California over to the coast of China? And the answer is no. Even more than that, the Q1 numbers that I've seen thus far look pretty weak. And so it seems to be that this is kind of now finally reaching what we expected to happen last year to the point in which the Chinese government, the day after I wrote about this, stepped in and said, hey, hey, everyone calm down. We're almost done with regulations. We're going to get that done quickly. And we're not going to make everyone delist essentially from the United States. And then up went the tech stock. So yeah, ugh. I was going to say like, I was like, oh my God. So yes, that is all true. China did lose its first place spot. So we saw the impact happen. And then this week also the stocks went shooting up 
up again. And so I'm kind of like for startups, how many times do they need to trip before they like realize they need to, I don't know, like change their shoes, <laughs> like just figure, change kind of how they're building the company. <laughs> it was a horrible metaphor. I really want to make some sort of like, like lengthy all birds joke at this point about <laughs> shoes and valuations and going public, but I think it would be too much. The thing that I'll say is startups have had a lot of issues in China in the last year. I mean, if you were an ed tech startup, you may have yeah, lost your true. entire business last year, for example. And the government in the country is pushing more towards more industrial startup stuff like chip fabrication and so forth, which is a very different game than building social software or games. Yeah. And so you can't hard pivot to that instantly overnight. In fact, I've seen some people discuss that there's now a chip bubble in China because so much capital has flown into that in the last six, eight, nine, ten months that now it's kind of being put to work in a relatively inefficient manner. So we'll see. It's a fascinating market. There are so many of our fellow humans involved and so many founders out there as well that are yeah. kind of being buffeted back and forth. But I don't think the turbulence is over. And so when we think about the US market, how it's changing, changes in Europe, changes in Africa, changes in Latin America, changes in India, don't forget what's going on in China. It's still a very important technology market, albeit one that comes with a whole host of caveats. Definitely, definitely. And caveats is the place that we're ending today's show because we're yes. talking about crypto. We're talking yep. about Facebook. We're talking yep. about meta. Sorry, not Facebook. <laughs> I mean, I, blah, blah, blah. Same diff. <laughs> they just painted the sign over, Natasha, and just changed the logo. I know. Oh my God. Okay, before we introduce the actual topic that we're talking about, speaking yeah. of painting a sign over it, Facebook created a TikTok that is Facebook. It's at Facebook instead of at Meta, which Amanda pointed out is like kind of not in line with most of their branding. They've changed everything. They've changed their Instagram to Meta. They've changed everything to Meta, but they kept Facebook as their TikTok handle. The I know why. Gets. Oh, why? I know why. Why? Because no one knows what Meta is. Yeah, fair. Only us. Unless you're a business freaking journalist, you don't know what Meta, or if you're listening to this show, you count too. If you're not part of like our little world, you don't know that it's been rebranded as Meta. For example, if you go to like your parents and you're like, what's Alphabet? They're going to be like a series of letters that comprises a language. They're not going to be like, oh yes, Google's parent company. Yeah, true, true. That's true. I'll take that. I, like, I feel like it's so funny to me that they like fully committed and now they're fully like, okay, yeah, no one knows us. We're GV, comma, formerly known as Google Ventures, oh my comma. Gosh. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. one there, of those <laughs> choices. There's a, there's a lot of these rebrands that kind of grind my gears, but there's quite a lot of yes. news. Here's the kind of overall breakdown a collection of former Meta employees that have been working on the company's crypto project have started their own company now that Facebook is kind of out of that game. And they've raised a bunch of money. It's called Aptos. They raised 200 million led by Andreessen Horowitz. Lots of other people participated, kind of a murderer's row of crypto VCs. Coinbase Ventures is in there. I think Katie Hahn's new thing is in there too. So a lot of the people you'd expect. And then also this week, Mark Zuckerberg said that NFTs, everyone's favorite thing, are coming to Instagram in some capacity. One question for you, Natasha. One, well, two, actually. Do we need another blockchain? One. <laughs> and two, why is Facebook so late to everything? So oh I feel like God. Instagram adding NFTs just feels like boomers showing up and being like, what are you kids doing? Are you playing <laughs> with, with Pokemon? Should we add the NFT to the platform? Exactly. <laughs> I think on the point of like, do we need another blockchain? I don't have a perfect answer to that other than I can totally see the argument for X meta employees to feel like they need to give it another go. Yeah. Their crypto drain of talent has been staggering. And the fact that they're willing or that they're able to raise massive amounts of capital with something like an ex-meta sort of stamp of approval versus like an ex-PayPal stamp of approval, I think means a lot. People were excited about crypto in that company. And now we're going to actually see without all of the Zuckerberg red tape tensions, the government involved with that innovation idea, is it going to work? So that in itself is pretty interesting. <laughs> we don't need your Zuckerbucks. We've got an Andreessen bucks. Yeah. Dr Dr Drizz bucks. 
Not they got Andreessen and Tiger to work together, which if I recall correctly, rarely happens. Yeah, I can't so recall I, that happening very often. <laughs> I kind of love that they figured it out. And in Lucas's piece about this story, the valuation is, quote, well off into the unicorn territory. There's there's nuance to that, though. So I think the <laughs> equity valuation is around a billion dollars, but I think there's a token presale involved. And it's uh, hard to kind of attach that valuation to an equity valuation. They're distinct to a degree. So I think they can say well into unicorn territory, even though I think in the sense that you and I tend to consider valuations, it's around the billion dollar mark. Yeah. I just okay. I have a question about this because I was prepping for the show today and I was like, wow, they raised a couple hundred million dollars for a thing that hasn't even launched yet. We used to talk about how startups were easier to build than ever, cheaper. You could kind of put some stuff together, get some market feedback, then raise money to accelerate it. In the crypto world, it does seem to be the exact opposite that you get together brand name founders or a brand name idea, and then you raise an entire freaking bank to build it. And I'm curious why. It feels like no startup is more expensive to build than a crypto startup. It feels like self-driving car startups four years ago, you know? That's a good comparison. You're right. Like, it makes me feel silly to say things like, we're going to see the return of the lean green startup and profitability is important for for early stage startups (laughs) these days. Like, it is a complete separate conversation. And I, I guess the argument I probably have seen in Twitter or just like in my subconscious is like, when you're building something so nascent, if you can be someone who sounds like a visionary or has some crazy experience, in this case, like working on Facebook and working at Facebook as it was first trying to build out its crypto dreams, you have a chance. Let me try rephrasing that. There are so little answers about crypto right now that you don't need to have a ton to raise money. You can just be someone who believes in it, has a take, a hill that they're willing to die on, and and probably some street cred, and, yeah. and you will be able to raise. And it's yeah, it is just such a contrast we should give weight to. <laughs> to me, it's just FOMO, kind of writ large. Everyone wants to make sure that they don't miss the next Ethereum essentially. And so if you buy 15, 20 million worth of a token that's going to come out, it's essentially an insurance policy more than an investment. And I think that's fine, but it doesn't show a lot of conviction. When Coinbase Ventures puts money into something, I think, ah, a crypto project. I don't think, ah, this is going to be the next winner because they put money into everything. Yeah. I mean, to be a generalist investor or even like a Web3 investor and investing in a ton of different companies, I'm kind of less interested in their takes, hot take. And I'm more interested in like the founders because I was talking to a founder about this the other day. He was just like, listen, I'm only going to be able to speak from like what I believe is right because I think everyone else is wrong. And I was like, that is more interesting to me because you actually have to have conviction versus a VC who, like you're saying, is just trying to de-risk themselves from missing out on yeah. the future. It's funny how all the contrarians are now rude about contrarians about crypto, but that's a different Ugh, point. Oh my God. <laughs> I just want to go back to what you said about, you know, if you're early, you can do really well. I just want to point out back in 2014, when I introduced CrunchCoin to the world, I was so early on this idea of bespoke blockchains for particular uses. Mine was an April Fool's joke. Oh my uh, God. Back- I didn't even know you had a CrunchCoin Oh yeah. Joke. It has the Captain Crunch logo. And it was, I was joking that like, we're all going to get paid in CrunchCoin. And if you use CrunchCoin to buy tickets to disrupt and all that, 2014. So this is so not new. Yeah. Oh my God. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. I should have raised money for that. <laughs> I, I know. I, I, could, I could buy one of those oligarch yachts that are apparently now up for sale. <laughs> Let's end with your piece on NFTs. Like I feel like I, it's a piece that I think we just need to like remind people is happening, which is that NFTs, the NFT market is slowing down despite everyone's Twitter profile picture. What's yes. happening? Well, I, look, you really in the world of anything involving blockchain, you don't want to speak in absolutes. 
never say never essentially, or never say always, because it seems to be always incorrect. But in this case, we are seeing another kind of NFT decline. And we saw a couple of these last year. I mean, the NFT market is like the crypto market, but faster. And the crypto market is like the startup market, but faster. So this is like the second order of magnitude higher in terms of volatility than startups. We saw a enormous boom in the value and trading activity of NFTs, which really helped OpenSea raise a lot of money and really generate just oodles of revenue. Shout out to them for that. It's a fantastic business. And we're seeing that kind of come back to the earth now. And so the question is, how long does this either blip or downturn, depending on how things shake out, last? And then when does the market reinflate, kind of come back to where it was? And if it does, does it look the same, same players and so forth? I don't think that people are going to be spending a million dollars on Ethereum rocks in five years. And I think that some return to a semblance of sanity would be good for the NFT market in general to build more serious things. The serious point is real because there are so many well-capitalized companies in this space that are going to have to find some way to get like a stickier customer. Just to name a few, there's Pear Pop, which got into NFTs this year. Breeder, Dow, raised from Andreessen. Royal, it's an NFT music team, raised 55 million. Pixel yeah. Vault, 100 million. Burt Finance, Pop, P-O-A-P? Oh, P-O-A-P. That's proof of actual presence. It's essentially an NFT you get when you do something to prove that you went and did it in the metaverse. I've interacted <laughs> with this in Decentraland. Oh do, it, 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 does any of this check? Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm just saying random syllables I was now. like, did he just say that? Did everyone just hear that? <laughs> I, I wrote a blog about Decentraland. I, I showed up and I walked around and I had a reasonable good time. It was like a bad RPG. Okay. That gives it much more validation than a venture check. So I'll take it. And then we talked about public and Coinbase. And I mean, everyone, everyone has everyone. some sort of egg in the NFT game. And hey, at least Instagram is finally getting into it. So I think yeah. it's going to be saved, Alex. But I mean, Instagram will be the one place where they don't make money off of NFTs. Everyone <laughs> else is making a mint. And I think Instagram's going to show up and be like, you know that hello fellow kids meme that's like yeah. been around for a thousand years? Just write NFT on the guy's hat and you have yeah. it sorted out. That's Instagram for you. That's it. <laughs> Listen, uh, next week, Marianne will be back. I will be back in Providence on my home desk. Natasha will be, I don't know where she'll be, but we will have more of us back. And so we'll be back to full strength. But it has been really fun to take the show on the road by accident. Yes. A big shout out to our hearty and intrepid producer, Grace, who has been shepherding us through this week and making sure that all the things work even as we move around. It's a big challenge. So thanks to her. And Natasha, a pleasure as always. And I'll talk to you Monday. Yes, let's do it. Bye. Bye. <laughs>